Cry Malt has been supplying the best ingredients to Australian and New Zealand brewers for 30 years. Their range of malt, hops and yeast is sure to take your beer to the next level. Proud sponsors of Brews News and Beer as a Conversation since the very beginning. Learn more about Cry Malt at www.crymalt.com. part of the plan to put a brewery in but for many years it was just a plan it's a hundred percent acquisition of green beacon no we had a chat with everybody anyone would have seen this coming a mile away you know the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing oh yeah that's super simple and direct question it's always fun to get to speak about beer This is Beer is a Conversation, and of course, we love to talk about beer. This week, I have with me Brendan Dowd and Stephen House, co-founders of Resin Brewing in the New South Wales town of Bolag, located on the land of the traditional custodians, the Tarawal people. Uh, Resin opened to the public in 2020, which I'm sure feels like a million years away uh, now, but it was a project that the team developed in a historic former railway guest house, which was hit by arson attacks and was in a bit of a state uh, when the guys took it on. They subsequently won a National Trust Adaptive Reuse Award in 2020 for their heritage build. So gone from strength to strength, despite all the challenges of the past couple of years. So, hey, guys, thank you very much for coming on the Bears of Conversation podcast. Thank Thanks you. for having us. No worries. Um, how, how are you doing? What are you up to? Well, Steve's actually down in Jindabyne at the moment, and um, I'm just here getting some work done. All going well? Busy, busy? Yeah, it's starting to pick up after that, um, that second COVID lockdown. The weather hasn't been great to us, but, yeah, we're, mm-hmm. we're busy, busy. Um, off to Gab's in a couple of weeks, so just getting ready for that. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Is that your first one? It will be our first, yeah. 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 It's um it's exciting. Oh, how exciting. What what have you brewed for it? We've got a couple of our regular beers and then we also have a couple of barrel aged beers that we've done with um a few different a few different ads. So we've got a four different flavoured of our eight shade stout. And also some barrel-aged Britannomyces sours. So we'll see how they go. Oh, that sounds delicious. When did you guys start doing barrel-aging? Um, we've got a few few small small barrels on site. And we've also got um, we've also got a mate that we partner with who's got a quite a big um, barrel-aging setup nearby. So um, we're just, just getting into that with him a little bit and, um, yeah, see how that goes. Not much space on site for us. Yeah, and the, the barrels are a bit over a year now. They've, um, yeah, we've had them in Shiraz barrels and had a good year in there to to really get them to to mature and come alive. So we're looking forward to tasting them and seeing how they go as well. Yeah, that'll be gorgeous. And that must have been a little learning curve because, um, well, let's let's get back to the beginning. Uh, how did you get into brewing, guys? Because you were environmental consultants before, were you? Yeah, yeah, we we got into the brewing in the garage, like like most good brewers do. Um, yeah, just two mates that had been home brewing for years, and um, you know, st- oh, I think we both started originally with the old Cooper's kits twenty odd years ago, and then went into all grain uh, brewing from there, and just um, yeah, developed our passion for it from there. 
Excellent. So why, but why take the plunge? I mean, were you, I'm sure you were happy homebrewers, um, then taking on this massive project uh, of setting up and setting up in a heritage building, what what sort of prompted you? I think, I think the, the grind of being environmental consultants was um, one of the things that tipped us over. Um, you know, as, as homebrewers, you've often got friends and family giving you the nudge, telling you you should start a brewery, <laughs> your beer is great and things like that. But um, we, were, we, were, we were on long nights, long days being consultants and um, we'd often sit and enjoy our home brews together and talk about the, the dream that would be to have your own brewery and after a while it just set in and we decided to give it a go. Oh, fantastic. But it requires a lot of prep. Um, so how did you... When did you start thinking about it? Was it quite a few years before you actually launched? And and how did you fund it? Was it all self-funded? We, we'd been dreaming about it for, for many years and um, I guess we'd kind of gone through the different models of brewing, like whether to do a, a sort of industrial area, sort of, um, I guess, wholesale packaging type approach um, and in going through everything and, and what we wanted, I guess, for... For ourselves and the community, we, we just decided to go the um that the brew pub model was was better for what what we wanted and where we were at, and we'd, we'd kind of been kicking around a few different locations over years and years, and we had one place that we were talking to the the owners about leasing, and then they had some pretty unrealistic expectations with with um how that was going to work, and there was this old heritage building that we knew that um that Woolies owned and had tried to get consent to knock it down um, which had been refused and yeah just one day we we thought well let's let's have a crack at that and pretty much got on the phone dialed 1800 Woolies and spoke to this lovely lady on the other end who who knew exactly who the property manager was for that site and put us through and they were they were keen to get rid of it and we were we were keen to buy it so it started sort of started from there. But why such a difficult build like you say um, most breweries go tend to go in an industrial area purely because um, zoning is a little bit easier on uh, the planning process. You guys went full hog fast um, and it, like dive straight in. Did you feel you were well set up for that as well, having been environmental consultants and having worked in that kind of space? Yeah, it definitely helped. Steve and I had been doing that for the last, you know, 20, 25 years. So we knew a lot of the planning processes, um, you know, of, Obviously, knew a few of the people at council, knew how to engage um, council officers and things, so that definitely helped. Um, we definitely didn't plan on um, restoring a, a heritage house or anything to that effect. Um, it was just that we had the idea that a brew pub was what we wanted to do. Um, so when that site kind of became available, it was it was a few beers one night, and we said, "Yep, let's do it." Um, and then it just took its own course, really. Um, Steve and I kind of sat down and gave each other a few silos of who would do what, and off we went. Yeah, and I think when, when we bought the property, it kind of very much went from being a dream to becoming reality, and that was the kind of point we went, oh, oh shit, this is actually happening now. We're, let, let's um, let's start getting a business plan and working out how we're going to make it at work because we'd been kind of like, <laughs> dreaming about it for so many years and it was, it was a bit surreal. It's like, yeah, we're actually doing this. Let's 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 do it. Let's do it well. I mean, that must have been a huge dive, though, because being environmental consultants. 
that's a solid career, you know? There's no question about um, if COVID hits, uh, you know, what are we gonna do for the next two years? You'll, you'd have had a job. What made you really want to? Because that's a scary move. Yeah, I guess there was a bit of push and pull. I, I think as Brandon said a, a bit earlier, the the push was we, we'd been in that industry for 20 odd years and we, we'd, it, it's it's an industry that can grind you down after a while. It's, it's long hours, it's hard work, it's, it's quite stressful. Um, you know, it's not all out in the bush catching critters and counting trees and whatnot. There's there's a lot of um, report writing and office work behind that and that's not much fun. And I guess also at a stage in life where we're both in our sort of 40s and just thinking, well, if, we, if we're going to do a career change, it's kind of now or never. Yeah, definitely. And in comparison, uh, workload-wise, have you found brewing any easier? Like since we started, it felt like I haven't worked a day in my life, to tell you the truth. Um <laughs> Even the approval process and getting everything built and things um, over those first couple of years, you know, much less stress, much less grind, even though we were doing big days and things, the, the joy that we obviously got from it was um, much greater. You know, we, 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 like we said, we spent the last 20 years basically getting approvals for huge developers and miners and things like that and to actually you know you finish one of their projects that might take two or three years and you basically sign off on that approval they've got their approval and you never hear from that project manager ever again um and to be to be basically doing the same thing but to come out with what we have now is just yeah chalk and cheese and then you know the last two years while we've had Obviously, the COVID issues and things, it still doesn't feel like I'm actually working. I don't know if Steve thinks the same. Well, I think, um, you know, a day when we're, you know, we might be triple batching and at 2 a.m. and you get a a stuck heat heat exchanger or something like that, you kind of feel like you're working then and the stresses come through um, pretty full on. But but generally, it's um, like it's a good industry. I think think you can make it as stressful as as you want it to be, but we're, we're kind of, I think with the brew pub model, um, we're not stuck to having to meet distribution requirements and the requirements of our wholesalers. We're, we're sort of more focused on just the quality of the beer and the quality of the, the venue, the food, the service, and um, you know, keeping our, our locals really happy. And that's there's a lot of joy in doing that, and you get to know your customers quite well and um, get the pleasures of of sampling your own produce as well and, and building different relationships. So it's, the, the stress is there, but they're, they're certainly different. And But I think um, Brendan would agree it's, it's a lot more rewarding um, being part of the community and, and doing something like a brew pub. Absolutely. And obviously bringing back a beautiful old building. Um, so tell me a little bit. I remember speaking to you guys oh, two and a half years ago, maybe now. And we were talking about the absolute state of this building um, before you guys took it on. So tell me a little bit about how bad it was and uh, what you had to do to to fix it. Oh, might be easy to tell you what we didn't have to do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> basically everything. When the, the first day we walked in, um, you know, we... We knew we we kind of knew what we were getting, but once we actually had a walk around and 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 you know checked everything out, it was kind of like, oh hell, what have we done? Um, but from the start, we kind of we did have a vision and we knew what what it could be. It was just working out how the hell we were going to get there. 
you know, it was, yeah, it was in dire straits, to be honest, that kids had been partying in there. There was, you know, drug-addled squatters living in there for a while. They'd burnt the stairwell down. They'd ripped up all the floorboards. There was, you know, there was a room that they used as their toilet, things like that, and, you know, then then termites, rodents, everything. It was just, yeah, it was a bit of a mess, so... um, it was a it was a definite clean up job to start with. I think that was pretty much our first box we ticked, wasn't it, Steve, to get the clean up done? Yeah, yeah. We took um, I think there was about twenty tons of rubbish that that had to get taken out of the building before we could even start working on it. Oh my god, that's insane! So when, when the when the I guess the last people that lived there yeah had had abandoned it, they just left all their furniture there, and it had just been destroyed and. Um, set on fire in various rooms, and yeah, it was it was just a it was just a mess. And then asbestos on top of that, termites, lead paint, we had it all. Oh. Yeah, lead paint. <laughs> oh my god! You may as well have just started a new one. Oh, do you? Did you ever wish you had? In the end, we, we you know what we got from Woolworths, you know, and what that cost us is probably, you know. At the time, we might have been like, "What the hell have we done?" But you look back now, and we've got something that's you know you you can't you can't replicate that by doing something new. It just doesn't work that way. And the amount the amount of people that come in and just say, you know, tell us how proud they are to live in Bulai. You know, can't believe what they what what we've done with such an old building and what it used to be like. It's it's pretty cool to hear that day in day out. Really, one really cool thing, you know, now that we've kind of finished. Um, Steve's dad's really into his photography and history and things, and he went and went and pulled a whole um, library of old photos of Bulai and the house and the area and things like that, and they all hang on the wall in the Heritage House. And we often get, you know, people just walking in. They don't even buy a beer. They just come in and walk through the Heritage House and have a look at all the old photos and things, so it's really cool to see that. Yeah, that sounds absolutely brilliant, though. And what you did with it was amazing. But how did you prep it for um, the brew kit? Because I then it's not actually um, your brewery isn't in, in the main building, is it? No. So we've got we've got the heritage house that sits out front, um, and basically it's it's two story. Um, ground ground floor is basically how we've set it up. Is our dining spaces. So we use that we use that for. Um, our food service and then upstairs we had some um access issues with the stairwell not meeting code so it's staff only upstairs um we use that for office space and um storage team rooms bathrooms and things like that and then a whole new build out the back which is basically um twice the size of the heritage house we've also got a deck that's um about that size again as well um and in terms of the brewery, yeah, we had to we had some flood issues um, with the whole site. So the the house actually sits, what is it, Steve? About eight hundred lower than the rest of the build. Yeah, yeah. And we had council basically said we had to bring the back end of the, the new build up above the the flood zone. Um, so there's a you know there's a couple of steps there, and then we, once you get into that, you get into all the issues of um, disabled access and the like. So then we had to put in a, like a twenty five thousand dollar lift to, um, you know, allow disabled people to go down the that eight hundred mil distance, and then with our um, our all our all our tanks, we we weren't allowed to go up 
um, in height above the heritage building um, just so that it maintained the prominence of the building. So we actually sunk a cellar down, a waterproof cellar down into the ground and double stacked our tanks. So we've got uh, fermenters on the bottom and, and uh, 10 hectares on top. Um, so that had all these, I guess, planning challenges and that we had to come over, oh, overcome with, with different designs and and then find ways how to integrate those into to actually making the place look pretty good. So there's yeah, quite a few challenges. Yeah, with with the build, actually dropping the tanks into that cellar was probably my favourite part of the whole build. We, um, <laughs> yeah, had to be down in the cellar while the while the crane driver was standing there with his remote control, dropping these huge vessels down into us and locating them on the floor. It was pretty cool. It's a pretty tight space down there. So um, by the last vessel, there was literally no, you know, it was millimetre types um, driving from the crane driver. It was it was amazing. Oh, wow. Um, but no room to grow then? Is that, not, or is there, not, are you going to no, spread out a little bit? Not at all. We're, we are, <laughs> yep, yep. The, um, you know, we talk about buying an extra, extra f- small 50 litre um, whiskey barrel or something to put some stout in and we've got to consider space constraints just for something like that. Yeah, we're at, um, we're at full capacity. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, but the whole like approvals and planning process did sound completely mad. I know there are lots of brewers, regardless of where they're going, uh, and where they're planning to build their brewery have a lot of trouble with councils and getting approval and a lot of it has to do with uh, the councils not really understanding what they're trying to do with the brewery you know it's not a forex um, brewery it's not uh, a nightclub uh, did you kind of experience those same sort of issues not really we, we were pretty fortunate um, so we, we went and spoke to council very early in the process and basically told them what we wanted to do um, and I think in a lot of a lot of ways, having the heritage building actually helped us with the the planning process because they council and the community were very concerned about um, what was going to happen to that building longer term. And and once council knew that we were, uh, I guess, committed to the restoration, they actually got right behind our project and and um, gave us a lot of support. Um, with with how to design things, how to work our way through the planning system, we we sent in draft plans to them and, and worked through, I guess, some of the design issues, and they gave us really good feedback. And we kind of got to a point where they just said, if if you do X Y Z, um, unless there's you know a massive community upper or against this place, uh, that that council would get behind us and support it, and we pretty much did what they asked. We didn't have any battles with them. Um, they were very reasonable with with what their requests and expectations were, and, and we did get a pretty good run through the planning system. I think we, from submitting our drafts into them to getting actual approvals, was was um, about six months, maybe even a bit less. Um, and when you compare that a, a house in in the local area, just a standard residential building, takes um, you know four to five months. Six, then you look at six months for a brewery in a in a business zone, not in an industrial zone, and it, yeah, it was a pretty good run for us. Very impressive. Um, I've barely ever heard that. Um, some people tell me years sometimes that it takes from um, actually applying to getting their final approval. So that actually sounds like um, being in a heritage building worked in your favour uh, in in some respects. But I imagine there were quite a few constraints on what you could do with the site as well. 
No, it's more how we designed it. We the big thing was, um, I guess, twofold. We we had to honor the the integrity of the building, but we had to design all the other builds in a way that didn't sort of overshadow the building or detract from the building or, or stand out a bit more. And and we did have to, I go to an, I guess, go to an architectural style of design and do do something that was quite aesthetically pleasing and complementary to the building and and didn't look like it was just a, a attempt at a, a sort of faux add-on to the building. So we, we 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 went that sort of modern industrial type approach to the new building so that you could clearly see what the new and what the old was, um, but did it in a way that was quite sympathetic to the old building and um, it's, a, it's come up really well. We're, we're really proud of it and... The community loves it. Council loves it. So yeah, it's, it's been it's been good like that. But probably our bigger issues were with um, the utilities companies. So just <laughs> like ridiculous problems with um, the energy providers, with um, Sydney Water, and some of the stuff, some of the absolute rubbish they came up with after after we built the place, and basically going back on what they originally said to us and wanting us to retrofit the building um, with different. Um, waste management systems after they six months earlier told us what they wanted and signed off on that and wanted us to then go and spend another thirty forty thousand dollars to to retrofit the building for something that would have cost us ten thousand dollars to do up front was was a bit frustrating yeah power wise we're we're currently running off basically a residential pole mounted um, system we thought we were going to upgrade that and we went around in circles. We ended up looking into having to get a, a pad-mounted sub on site. There was no space for that. So we went around in circles for quite a few months with that, didn't we, Steve? And ended up, in the end, finding out that we weren't going to get any upgrade to our power into the site. So we started looking at, at ways to kind of generate our own. We ended up with a co-generator, a natural gas co-generator that we've got up on the roof of the new build. Um, and... Ultimately, now we're currently yet to use it. Um, it still still needs to still needs to get signed off. But um, yeah, we're basically running off the existing power that came into the site. Yeah, we've got a three three phase sixty five amp connection, um, and somehow we're running a <laughs> brewery, um, a full commercial kitchen, everything off off sixty five amps. And yeah, I, I honestly I don't know how it's working, but it is. <laughs> That's crazy. Will it like if it ever goes over? Will it click over to the co-generator? How does that work? Yeah, well, we've got two two-phase systems. So we've got a, um, a fancy thing called a, a BMS or a building management system. So it kicks in and it regulates the different phases, and it can actually shut equipment off if we need to to stay under that sixty-five. But if we needed that sixty, if we needed to go beyond that, um, yeah, we could we could um, kick that gas-fired um, plant into into gear, but we haven't had to do it yet. Yeah. I mean, good as a backup, but it sounds like that would have been an expensive investment uh, that you might not have needed. Yeah. <laughs> it's a roof ornament at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but sit, sit, sitting up on a big pad above the, above the toilets out the back, it's crazy, you know, to think <laughs> that it's sitting there because we, we thought we'd need it to even be able to run and now we're kind of... We did spend quite a bit on this BMS to make sure that we were safe in that aspect. So, you know, that's mm-hmm. working for us. But, um, you know, there's probably some savings we could be making by using that co-generator. So, 
we'll be we'll be looking into yeah. that soon enough. We've had too many other things to consider over the last year or two. I bet. Yeah, we'll definitely have to get on to that. Yeah. Um, one thing that, that sort of jumped out at me that was really interesting about, especially about the water, um, I was doing, I did an article last week just about um, like pH correction equipment in the brewery and what to do with your wastewater and, and all that kind of stuff. So how did all that work out? Um, I know this is something that people kind of don't think about when they're building a brewery, that this could be one of the biggest issues that they might have to deal with. Um, so how did all that work out? And, and did you have to um, invest in any of that sort of waste management equipment in the end? I guess um, our, our approval um, was set up so that we've got a, a filtration tank at the back, um, which also doubles up as our pH correction tank. So we measure pH and manually dose um, and what happened is after this had all been agreed and set up and signed off by Department of Fair Training and Sydney Water, we had a new um, Sydney Water officer come in who basically said, no, they want us to move to um, our... Auto-dosing. Yeah, auto-dosing and our solids being filtered before it hits the filtration tank, so putting... Um, floor baskets into the waste system and, and all of this sort of stuff, which was just going to be a nightmare for us. Um, and we actually wound up talking to some pretty senior people in, in Sydney Water and in the end they allowed us to, to sort of continue operating as we are, um, but with just, I, I guess, a, some pretty detailed record keeping on, on our behalf in, in terms of um, how we're doing our dosing, when we're doing our dosing, um, amounts that we're dosing with. And, and that, that's all worked out, you know, fine for us and fine for Sydney Water. And we, things so far, touch wood, have, have been good um, with those guys ever since. I think Steve, Steve left out a little, a little part of that story there. He had to dig <laughs> deep into legislation and policy to work out how and why they were coming at us at this point um, and... I think we, in the end, went back to them and said, "Look, your your current legislation doesn't doesn't allow you to tell us we need to do that, so we're not going to do it." Um, oh yes, yeah, yeah, quite a good win for Steve <laughs> on that one. And but, absolutely, yeah, they have come back and said, "Yeah, but we are now going to update our legislation. We'll be coming back to you in a in a year's time or something." So, oh no, oh, but at least it gives you a little bit of time. Yeah, sort out. Yeah. <laughs> Did you expect that to be one of the biggest problems when building a brewery? We knew it was something we were going to have to deal with um, and we were, we were quite happy to do it. And in all honesty, if they had have said to us up front that we we want us to do all these different systems, we would have done it. The, the problem was coming in, I think it was like six months after we'd finished the build and then telling us to retrofit. The, the cost of retrofitting is like, you know, so much more expensive than if we had just done it up front. Um, so, yeah, we're quite happy to do it. And in time, we'll, we'll probably have to upgrade some systems and we'll probably move to what what they want us to do voluntarily. But, um, yeah, at the time, it was just a, it was a bit of a kick in the guts because it was also just when COVID had came in and, you know, our cash flow was, was um, not looking too good and doing an expensive retrofit at, at that time of... Um, of things was not not good for us yeah i imagine and like we've touched on covid now but and it's it's something that's always there it feels like the elephant in the room like we need to talk about it and 
I'm very interested to hear your experiences, but I bet at this point you're probably sick of hearing about it um, from a business and a personal perspective. So how did it go? Because you guys opened, what, a few months? Two, um, two, not even? Two before? weeks. Two weeks. Oh, two weeks, two weeks yeah, we got, before COVID hit. We got our first, our first opening week with no restrictions. And then our second week, we, we got the first first layer of restrictions. I think that's how it worked, wasn't it, Steve? Yeah, we were cut down to half capacity in the second week with the social distancing and week three we were closed. Yeah. Oh, God. Take away hand can sales from the um, over the counter, yeah, that was it. Yeah, yeah. And that must have been hard, especially as a new brewery. You didn't ha- necessarily have the brand awareness required for like loads of online sales or yeah. like ha- I imagine it was a lot of support from the local community that got you through that. Yeah, look, we weren't we weren't packaging or wholesaling um, or even mm-hmm. set up for that anyway. So um, it's not like we, you know, brand awareness was an issue there. But yeah, like you said, mm-hmm. it was local community and people, you know, we, we could not get enough growler sales. Um, you know, enough product in to sell enough growlers. It was it was consistent. Some some Saturday mornings we had probably a hundred person lineup out the door, down the ramp, wow. around the front of the street. People waiting to fill up their growls and things. So definitely had mm-hmm. some good support there. Um, but obviously, you know, still not the same of having five hundred people through your door on a Friday evening type thing. So um, yeah, it was pretty hard. Yeah, that's it. So how did you manage it? How did you keep everything afloat? Growlers, literally. <laughs> just just growlers for like the full <laughs> year, year and a half, do you? Take away food as well. So yeah. we, we just took, we battened down the hatches um, and we assembled a really good team of full-time staff um, with our kitchen and bar management. And so we we kept those guys on with, with the help of JobKeeper Um Unfortunately, we, we couldn't afford to keep our casuals on. We didn't. We just didn't have the cash for that. Um, but uh, luckily for those guys, they all got JobKeeper as well. And I think um, some of them probably ran up a, a bit better off than than just um, you know casual hours. Um, so yeah, we just had to really keep a close eye on cash flow um, and you know get the community to support us. And we, we basically stayed alive. We we, we lost a little bit of money during the first year uh, of COVID, um, but it wasn't wasn't enough to sink us. In, in all honesty, the second year was probably a bit harder on us. Why was that? There's a bit less government support, um, and mm-hmm. I think community-wise, like you kind of motioned to before, everyone was sick of COVID, and um, <laughs> you know, I think there was some. There was in the first year there was that government funding to get people out and spending still and things like that and that just all faded away in the second year. People just didn't bother, didn't go out. Um, you know, and to be honest, I was the same. I, you know, I wasn't I wasn't trying to head out and things and spend money. Everyone just kind of did their own thing at home and we just yeah, we seemed to seem to slow down a bit there and then following the lockdowns, um, La Nina hit and we've just been battered by rain ever since it's been crazy oh my god but are people coming back in slowly yeah it's been picking up over the last couple of months but um you know those two three months after covid lockdowns were probably probably our slowest since we opened would you agree steve i think they were pretty poor 
Yeah, so December, January, the most recent one was um, terrible for us. I think a lot of people just sort of, even though we weren't in lockdown, um, Omicron was sort of running rampant and and people just didn't go out. They just stayed at home and uh, were, were avoiding going out. Um, so, you know, December, January is normally our best trading period, Um or we'd expect it to be. <laughs> and we don't, we don't <laughs> yeah, know we're not sure is. yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we lost money over December, January, and we, we wound up in a point we had to shut down um, between Christmas and over that New Year's period because we'd had a whole lot of close contacts at work um, and we couldn't, couldn't actually staff um, the kitchen, couldn't staff the bar because all these people were in isolation as close contacts. Um, we had staff get COVID and, you know, if they'd been at work, then, um, you know, the people they worked with had to isolate for another week. It was just, a, it was just disastrous. There was just no confidence in, in being able to run. And I think people in the community weren't very confident about going out because they didn't want to catch Omicron. Mm-hmm. But then things turned in February. Um, so we're back in the, we've been back in the black since February and they just, the vibes change. People... Well, I think we're, everybody's learning to live with the virus now rather than be scared of it. Um, we're, mm-hmm. we're, our trading's much improved over the last couple of months, which has been an absolute relief. I bet. Um, and, and that's the thing about Bolag. It looks like a beautiful place to live and like a lovely cl- local community. How much will or do you expect any trade to be from like tourists? Um, are there a lot, are going to be a lot of people coming from Sydney, for example? Yeah, we do get a lot of Sydney traffic. We're right on the train line. Um, we we share the car park with um, with the train station, so a lot of people do get the train. Um, we, you know, we're a part of the um, South Coast Ale Trail, uh, so we do. Yeah, we do see a lot. Um, we probably need to, you know, we would hope to see see that grow now that we're kind of back to some kind of normality, but. Um, you know, it's everything's just so so different at the moment. Yeah, and it, it's a good day out from Sydney. You can get the train down, jump off at Resin, have lunch and beers at Resin, and then jump on the bus and go to Rube Goldberg's at Tarawana, and then jump on another bus and go to Five Barrels down in Wollongong. So there's there's quite a few breweries in Wollongong now, and it's um yeah, it's quite easy to move around with public transport as well. So it's it's kind of ideal for. You know, a, a big Saturday out or a big Sunday out if, if um, people are coming down from, from Sydney. The other thing is we're really quite close proximity to Western Sydney. Um, so everything from the sort of – we get people from Penrith, Oran Park, um, Campbelltown, that sort of region. Uh, they they come down to the beach and whatnot and then come over for a beer afterwards. So we do we do get a lot of people from out that way too, which is great. Yeah, that's fantastic. Hi everyone, this is Matt. We're breaking into this podcast for a word from our sponsor, as we like to say. But not just any sponsor, as you know at Brews News, we're very selective who we work with. And this is a special partnership with Lark Whiskey, which is soon to release the fifth incarnation of its collaboration with Wolf of the Willows Brewery. In this annual exchange of ideas and whiskey barrels between Lark and Wolf, Lark hand-selects whiskey casks and sends them to the Victorian-based brewery, who fills them with Imperial Johnny Smoke Porter. Before it is decanted, and the now beer-infused casks are filled with single malt whiskey. 
Hang around at the end of this podcast to hear my chat with Chris Thompson, master distiller at Lark, and how he discusses the collaboration. But here's a bit of a teaser that actually comes from my preliminary chat with Chris, who gives me some surprising insights when I ask him what beer should do to become a little bit more like whiskey in the consumer's mind. Beer shouldn't try and be like whiskey. Whiskey should try and be like beer. The rituals involved with beer are integrated into society. They're not pretentious and they add so much. At Lark, we are trying to be more like beer, more democratic, more open and more welcoming to, to new drinkers. Traditionally, that's not what whiskey has been. Beer shouldn't be trying to be a more serious drink. It should be a fun but complex and continue to add to society. Now, that definitely was not the answer I was expecting. And if you enjoyed that, please hang around at the end of this podcast to hear more about Chris's approach to whiskey in this bonus chat. It's a really fascinating insight into the partnership between beer and whiskey. But it's really good that you haven't had to rely on that or you didn't rely on that before um, COVID hit because obviously that would have been <laughs> a bit of even more of a stressful time, I imagine, uh, for you. Uh, but one of the other things I always noticed, noticed about resin, so obviously follow you guys on social media and always see this amazing food um, coming out of resin. Now, usually, uh, or maybe I should say the perception is of a brewery or a brew pub that they very much do, you know, your classic pub grub Um you know, not 100% saying that it's like top quality stuff, uh, might just be like a beer and a burger type situation. Uh, but resin seems to take that and then like crank it up a notch. And hospitality sounds like it was a big focus for you guys as well. So how has that gone? And, and how have you been managing that? How do you decide uh, what kind of menu you've got? Do you do a lot of beer and food pairings, for example? Um, how important is the hospitality, like the food side of things to you as well? Yeah, from the, from the start in our early business planning days, even though those business plans went out the window pretty quick, um, you know, Steve, Steve <laughs> and I decided that food was going to be a focus. We wanted to have that brew pub, a location in Bulai for the surrounds for people to come and enjoy. And we wanted that we wanted that family orientation as well where where you don't just have people coming and having a few pints, but the whole family can come and enjoy a meal and whoever wants to have a beer can have a beer. So you're not just restricted to the to the craft beer trade. Mm-hmm. And you know there's not a whole lot especially in Bulai, there's not a whole lot of options for eating. Um, you know five, ten minutes away in Thoreau, you get a lot more options. But where we are, we're pretty much it. Um, so we just, from the start, we just had a focus that we wanted to have a slightly elevated menu that gave people options to actually head out for dinner as well. Um, so we focused on that from the start, made sure we approached and put it out there that we were looking for, um, you know, high quality chefs, not just like you said, that pub grub. And we've been lucky that we've mm-hmm. had some, um, yeah, we've had some really good chefs. That's brilliant. And like on that kind of front, how how are you finding um, getting hospitality and back and front of house staff at the minute? Because I know that's been a struggle for people, especially in uh, potentially smaller towns, regional towns. Front of house is pretty easy for us. We've got a, a really good university in Wollongong um, and lots of very capable uni students looking for um, casual or part-time jobs in hospitality. So we've 
I'd say most of our, our front of house staff are actually doing degrees at the same time. Um, back of house has probably been our biggest challenge um, in the business other, other than COVID. There's a real, I guess, lack of supply of, of good chefs around and people tend to move around a lot. Very um, transient, yeah. Mm-hmm. So if we've had some good stability in our head chef, but uh, a lot of movement in in the other staff below him. So the sous chef, the commie chef, we've we've gone, we've had quite a lot of change over there. Um, where our current head chef is absolutely brilliant. He he's run kitchens for Rick Stein and Jamie Oliver. He's he's taken our food to another level. Um, with him on board, we've actually got chefs reaching out to us and wanting to work with us now. So it's it's kind of Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, the, yeah we the, couldn't be happier with Dane. Um, he's, yeah, he's he's really picked things up for us and taken a lot of the stresses that we had during and kind of post-COVID. Um, so he's been on with us for probably three months now, Steve. Yeah, be, be about that. Yeah, and just a lot of feedback from the community as well. Just, you know, they're starting to realise that the food's picked up another level on top of what it was, which was already good. Um but yeah, it's it's next level now, and we're really soaked. We were sitting down having a beer last week, and um, Dane always brings up his um, his specials. He's, he's like, I think I'm going to try this swordfish ceviche as um, a special this week. <laughs> Made some for you guys. Could do you want to try it out? And yes. We've eaten it. I think Brendan's <laughs> response was, I think this is possibly the best thing I've ever eaten in my life. It was, it was so good. <laughs> So You'll be packing on the pounds, you two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a definite issue. <laughs> oh, that is fantastic. It's really good to hear. Um, and and what about on the brewing side of things in terms of getting people in? Are you guys doing all the brewing yourselves? Do you have an assistant brewer? Uh, and what are the plans for that? We were we um we were we were both brewing for the first twelve to eighteen months. And that was, you know, that was hard trying to run a business and um, do all the brewing as well. Um, it made a little bit easier, I guess, in terms of with COVID, with things slowing down. So we weren't as stressed trying to keep stock um, where it needed to be for constant turnover of a usual week. And we now have a, yeah, we now have a brewer on that's that's doing all the all the cellar and brew work at the moment. So Steve and I are out of the brew space. Is that nice or are you sad about it? Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> probably I probably should get in there a little bit more than I do. Um, Scott's really capable. Um, we're yeah, really happy to have him. So he's he's kind of getting it all done. Um, and no need to tread on his toes. So yeah, no, I'm 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 fine <laughs> being out. There's plenty to do business wise. So um, and to tell you the truth, it, it feels good to provide you know good solid um, jobs and careers for people in the local area. Yeah. And I guess one, one thing with getting Scott on as, as a brewer, the the thing that gave us the confidence to do that was when um, they made the changes to excise. Um, it's we, we did the numbers on that and that oh, yeah. rather than giving that money as tax to the government, we put that money directly into employing a, a brewer. So I think that was the intention of, of what the scheme was meant to do and, and it's, absolutely. it's absolutely changed our whole um, our thoughts on on um on how we do things so i hope that scheme that's stays fantastic, and gets isn't it? yeah 
That'll be brilliant, wouldn't it? Oh, wonderful! But tell me that you guys still get a little bit of a uh, little bit involved in uh, NPD and testing out and <laughs> quality assurance uh, when it comes to the brewing bit of bit of things. Yeah, definitely a bit of quality assurance. Um, staff, <laughs> if you had staff on, they'd definitely say that's all we really do. Um, <laughs> Just pure quality assurance. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, often at eight AM when your palate's at its best, so <laughs> gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> you gotta do it, you gotta do it. <laughs> and in terms of sort of the, the actual quality side of things, um, it must be is it tricky when you're running like a hospitality venue and the brewing? How do you guys keep on top of everything quality wise and safety wise uh, in the brewery as well? Well, I guess the first thing there, you, you employ good people um, and you get the right culture. So you, you've got to articulate what, what your values are. Um, if your value is do things as you know, cheaply and quickly as you can and cut corners, then you're going to have problems. But if your values are about, you know, the 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 value of your staff, the safety of your staff, the, the quality of your product, then if you set the culture right and you get the right people who have those sort of values as well, then it, it's... It makes that job a lot easier. One thing that did catch my ear, uh, no packaging. Um, so don't do anything wholesale-wise. We didn't early. We do oh, now. Oh, you didn't. You yeah. do now. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. So why why did you make that change? And and do you can in-house? Do you have a gun machine? Yeah, it was all, it was always the plan to, to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, you know, COVID changed things, obviously. But we always had the plan to, you know, maybe expand and move into a um, you know, packaging wholesale type realm. Um, it's just taken a bit longer to get there. We don't have the space on site to do any of that, so it would mean quite a significant jump to get there. Um, so at the moment, we are we we get a mobile canning line in, and we're we're doing mm-hmm. we're doing probably three skews a month. Um, you know, about two thousand liters a month into packaging. Mm-hmm. We've also got a little um, October. Um, hand seamer that we do kind of on demand stuff. So a lot of the a lot of the locals, you know, come in just to get their to get their quick, easy, easy fix and take away a four or a six pack type thing. So we've just got a little fridge that we stock up um, and keep that ready to go and people come in and 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 take that way as well. And you want to grow that side of things. Um, like I imagine it's much easier to get into sort of local pubs and restaurants and stuff. What about um going bigger than that do you think that would be on the cards well i'd never say never but it's at the moment it's not a big priority for us um there's a lot of brewing capacity out there and it's um i I guess some fear that for us to do that that would require a massive capital investment to get to a scale where um, where that would be viable for us. But at the same time, you've, there's a lot of other players um, in the industry that are expanding. There's a lot of tank space out there. And, um, you know, going to that next level and having to coordinate all the logistics and, and get to a volume to make that work is, is probably not where we're at at the moment. Mm-hmm. Never say never, but um, we're more just focused on getting the the brewery humming. We've got probably about a thousand litres of excess capacity a week that mm-hmm. we're looking to, to move through kegs and um, and some packaging and a bit more of a local focus with that. Fantastic. Um, so, yeah, if we can get that sort of running at, at its optimum level, then, then that would be the point that we might look at expansion. 
But happy to stay as you are for now, as you say. You've had a couple of rough years and yeah. still alive and kicking. Um, but <laughs> maybe maybe be a little bit more comfortable for the next year or two before deciding on a, like you say, a massive capital investment. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Another definitely. massive project. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Cool. So I guess, and this is what I always ask, uh, and I'm sure I've asked you before, guys, what advice would you give um, a new brewery setting up? Anything that you were surprised about? Anything that you were like, oh, God, I wish I'd known this before we started? Uh, what what would you tell them? The biggest thing would be the services um, for us in, in terms of, mm-hmm. I guess, just the logistical challenges of making sure the electricity, gas, water, sewer, all of that was going to work. And I, I think probably the next question you'd want to be asking yourself is whether you want to do a brew pub model or whether you want to go into packaging, production, wholesaling, because they're very different businesses. Yeah, Steve, Steve touched on that before, the, the brew pub, you know, and I wouldn't wouldn't change it in a heartbeat, but the the hospitality side of it and the kitchen definitely has has had its draining effect on us. It's probably been the one thing that we've kind of sat down in meetings together and gone, you know, <laughs> was this the right was this the right way to go? Um <laughs> Yeah. Why have we done this? Yeah, just you know that front of house, yeah. back of house, and having a having a full functioning, you know, because the kitchen was running seven days a week. We've kind of scaled that back to five now. Mm-hmm. Just doing a, a minimal menu on Monday, Tuesdays. We still get a few people through, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, just that the kitchen and and food side of things. And neither of us come from a hospitality background. We'd worked a little bit in hospitality, but so just just managing and dealing that has been quite tricky. A lot of other breweries go down the, um, you know, the the food truck, the van type um, Mm -hmm. avenue and maybe that's the way to go. (laughs) Yeah, then you don't have to worry about kitchen or back of house staff or chefs. Not that we don't love doing, but it would be a worry (laughs) off your mind, I imagine. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So you've been in the industry a couple of years now. Um, I'd say fully embedded uh, in what you guys are doing. What have you your perceptions of the industry been like since you've been in there how do you find it being in this industry and I imagine it's you've already talked about how different it is in terms of um your not just day-to-day but how about how different was it from your previous industry I'd say probably the first thing that struck me about the industry was how supportive the other brewers were in um in our region in in the Wollongong region with us coming on board and they reached out to us and offered us help and um, advice and we've, we've actually made some good friendships along the way from that. Whereas I guess coming from a, a consulting background, which is quite competitive, we, we probably had some thoughts that maybe there would be um, some competitive tensions and there's been absolutely none of that, which has been absolutely brilliant. Um, just seeing how well the industry works together and supports one another. And I think the sort of philosophy is we're not competing against one another. We're competing against, you know, these big multinational brands and we're actually just trying to collectively increase the, I know, I guess the size of the pie that the the craft beer market takes out of the total beer market. So that's probably the, the biggest thing and the most, I don't know, profound thing that I love about the industry. That's fantastic. And so lovely to hear um, in comparison to another industry, obviously, um, you know, coming in, it is a business, you've got to make money. Um, but if we can support each other as well, that's even better. 
what are your plans then for resin? What what we doing? In, have you got a five year plan? Have you got a ten year plan? Are you thinking of um, growing it big, selling it off? Are you happy to stay as a brew pub? What do you think? I know it's early days yet, and a lot's gone on. It's definitely focus on the brew pub for now, and just making mm-hmm. sure we've got that that base and and the brew pub humming along. Um, no plans to sell or anything. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we love what we do, and it's 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 good for both of us. Um, it's the the future. You know, the future probably if we if we were to look five years ahead, um, would probably be you know, expansion into some kind of packaging realm. But um, at the moment, you know, following two years of COVID, it's um, it's definitely let's just let's just focus on the brew pub for now. Cool. Well, guys, thank you so much. I've taken up so much of your time, um, but I really appreciate it. Um, thank you very much for coming on uh, Beer as a Conversation. Thanks, Claire. Thanks for having us. Good stuff. Thanks for listening to that conversation. Now, here's a little bonus for you. As I hear from Lark Distilling's master distiller, Chris Thompson, who tells me a little bit more about Lark's collaboration with brewer Wolf of the Willows. I asked Chris, what is it about this whiskey and beer that really works for him? Firstly, let's start about what's amazing about this collaboration in terms of the liquid. The liquid that we take is completely polar opposite to a Johnny Smoke Porter. So the whiskey component is this bright, fun, fruity, tropical piece, right? And then the beer's like this dark, heavy, velvety, incredibly thick, viscous, you know, it's got bitter and it also has has sweet that play off each other. So that's the beer. And when you bring them together, then what happens is the the whiskey is kind of like a a prism. So you think Pink Floyd for me. You have the prism and the the beer shines through it. But what what it does, by adding extra brightness, uh, lift, and alcohol to the beer, it separates the beer out. And then you can see every single component that made that beer. When we're making the whiskey, in our mind, what we're trying to do is showcase the beer in a different way. Now, the Johnny Smoke Porter is such a complex and rich beer, but with the alcohol of the, of the whiskey coming through it, then you can see each of those each of those components. That's the magic of this, this whiskey um, and the magic of the, the collaboration. Like in all seriousness, being a whiskey nut for 15 plus years now, there is not a single whiskey on the planet that looks like this. It does everything that you would expect a whiskey to do, but in a completely different way. Um, and it's, yeah, it's like it's exhilarating. It's exciting like no other whiskey. Yeah, it was probably well, it's my favourite whiskey to make every year because of that. So as a distiller with 15 years experience, what has Chris learned from his experience in partnering with a brewer? Yeah, probably that I'm a bit dumb. So I've, I started off and was like, no, nah, this isn't going to work. There's no chance that I'll, you know, this whole thing. I was so sceptical. And then we went through sort of one. So we sort of take different casks that look a bit different and we mix it with the beer and be like, what does it taste like? Oh, it doesn't taste very good. And we did that about seventh time. It was actually the very last whiskey um, sort of representation of the portfolio of what our casks have that we tried that it was like, oh, wow, that's, like, incredible. We have to do this. And at that point, I don't even think I'd spoken to Scotty. I think um, one of my outsiders, Johnny, 
had been speaking to, to Scotty about it and I called Scott, I was like, we've got to do this thing. I'm excited now. So um, what I learned was that I don't know what I'm talking about, at least five years ago. Don't trust your instincts and try everything. Um, and then from there, there what we try to do each year is provide the same backbone of flavour, um, but do it in a slightly different way. So if Chris was surprised that this collaboration could work, how has that changed over the course of five iterations of this whiskey? You know, Wolf Number One was just about um, a pure expression of balance. Wolf Number Two was um, trying to provide the most of this sort of prism experience with the the beer shining through and just showcasing. The third one was about excess. Absolutely, there should be too much of everything going on all of the time, and was just this outrageous over the top thing. The Wolf Number Four, which is my favourite, it's actually my favourite whiskey um, that we've done in my 15 years. So, of, you know, 500,000 whiskies that I've blended, um, that's my number one. I've got three bottles at home, and they seem to go. It used to be four bottles, so it's probably a, it's probably a pretty good sign. Wolf Number Four was to me just this balanced experience that just it just showcased everything that was great in the beer, and just it was just a little piece of um, exhilaration it's just every time I try it I just can't believe how much is going on in that uh, how easily you can see every component of the beer but also the whiskey but it's only flashes really quickly as it moves on to the next experience I suppose the next flavor and then this year this year is the one with the most beer in it so usually what would happen is that we'd fill the casks all the way up with the whiskey to soak the beer out but we haven't done that this year. We've actually only sort of 60% filled them. So the ratio of beer to whiskey is way higher. And so this year, the, the beer sits as this kind of solid block within the whiskey and it just showcases it in a completely different way, which is, which is really magical. And then if you add water to the whiskey, which sort of changes the surface tension, then it just erupts and launches out, which is just, yeah, there's no whiskey like it on the planet. And it's just, as you can tell, I get pretty excited. Finally, with so much detail already provided, I asked Chris just how this whiskey is made. In terms of making this thing, there's this like horrific logistics thing that you've got to go through. So we send barrels of whiskey or, or barrels that have held classic cask, which is one of, uh, I think it's the most popular Australian whiskey ever sold, I think. So it's like, it's our, one of our flagships and it's just, yeah, if you haven't tried it, definitely try it. It's pretty cool. So these are export and sherry whiskey um, barrels, mostly from Sebblesfield Winery, and mostly the wood for those will be at least 100 years old. So they would have held wine in it, and then they've held fortified either a sherry or a port in it for, you know, 60, 70 years, probably refilled a couple of times, sort of, you know, through its period. But, yeah, generally, generally around 100-year-old um, in terms of when it was chopped down as a tree. We get those, we fill it full of our whiskey, then we empty our whiskey out, send them straight up to Melbourne to um, to Wolf, to, to Scotty. Scotty puts the beer in it, so it soaks out all this kind of porty, sherry, sweet um, whiskies, um, raises the ABV. But then we have an issue because if, if Scotty just empties the barrels out and then sticks the buns back in and shoot, ships them back to us in Tassie, then the chance of oxidisation, the chances of the beer changing in a really negative way, you know, infection as well, are really high. And so the good thing about the product that we make being, you know, 60 plus percent is it freezes that, that process. 
it freezes that, you know, those changes in the barrel. And so, yeah, what we actually do is we ship the whiskey up. So we'll blend the whiskey against what last year's um, beer was, get a pretty good idea of what it should be. And then what we'll do is we'll ship the whiskey up to, to Scotty to put in the beer barrels. And so they'll empty the barrels. And within 20 seconds of that barrel being empty, there's whiskey going into that barrel. Um, and so you freeze and you capture the pure essence of that amazing beer, which is pain in the ass, to be honest, but it's, a, it's the right thing to do. It's what makes the whiskey so good. So that's a little bit about Lark's Wolf Release 5 launching on August 8 this year. I know I'm looking out for this one. Watch out for a few more chats about beer and whiskey in the coming weeks, including a chat with Scott from Wolf of the Willows. 